Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. So before I get started, I just want to mention that there are plenty of things that are going on this week. Today is September 24th, 2020, and this episode is meant to cover what happened last week because I've been dealing with some real-life things and unfortunately didn't get the chance to record this episode when I wanted to. So it'll be a relatively short one, but I promise you all the things that are happening this week with the Breonna Taylor verdict and Trump saying that he wouldn't give up his power if he loses, I'm going to cover all of that hopefully on Sunday. So looking forward to that. But in the meantime, this is going to be a bit of a shorter episode, strictly covering what happened the week before this one. So two things in particular I'm going to be talking about today. The first is going to be about the dueling town halls that Joe Biden and Donald Trump had. And the second thing is about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the implications that that might bring both in the bubble and on our democracy as a whole. So let's just go ahead and dive right into the town halls. Now, I will preface what I'm about to talk about by saying I didn't actually watch a good amount of either of the town halls, not because I didn't think it was important, but because I pretty much was sure about what they were both going to be about and what both candidates were going to say. So I'm not so much focusing on the substance of the town halls, which went pretty much about as you would expect. I'm instead going to be focusing more on how the bubble and Fox News in particular responded to how these town halls went. So I'm going to go ahead and start with Trump's because that was the first one that took place. And just my personal thoughts on what I saw at the town hall tell me that. So first of all, from what I understand about the town halls, they picked all undecided voters to be in the audience and ask him questions. Now, your definition of undecided voters could be completely different from what CNN's is. So it could be that these quote-unquote undecided voters were actually already decided for Biden or for Trump, but that's not the point. The point is that they labeled themselves as undecided and possibly could be swung one way or the other. So in any case, they had these undecided voters come to this town hall that Trump held and ask him questions. And to be fair, I would say the vast majority of questions that were asked of Trump were more hostile, were a little bit more combative. They were a little bit more critical than that of Biden, which was more, what do you think you would do in this situation? What has your record on this situation said about how you would handle this? Whereas Trump's was more like, you've bungled completely the response to COVID-19. What would you do in the future to remedy that? Would you res- would you uh, support a national mask mandate? And you've said in the past that you wouldn't. Why wouldn't you when this is a disease that's killing 200,000 people? So, you know, there was a lot of talk on Fox News and the bubble in general about how unfair, for lack of a better term, the coverage, not only the coverage of the town hall, but the town hall itself was for Trump as opposed to Biden who got softball questions, but I'll talk about that later. So 
The Trump Town Hall on Monday, the only real highlight, I would say, that people remembered from it, because let's be honest, in the greater scheme of things, nobody's going to really remember these town halls, especially once the debates come up in a couple of weeks. But the one main thing that I took away from the town hall, well, I guess there were two things. So the first one was that he attempted to blame Joe Biden for not having a mask mandate nationally. So one of the questions, as I mentioned earlier, was, do you support a national mask mandate? If so, why not? And Trump basically tried to both dodge the question and answer it at the same time, while also pandering to his base that is vehemently anti-mask. So he said something to the effect of, masks are good, masks are great. If you want to wear a mask, go ahead and wear a mask. But I don't personally like them. But Joe Biden, if he thought it was so important to wear a mask, why didn't he pass a national mask mandate? Yeah, this this is a real thing that he said. He 100% blamed Joe Biden for not having a national mask mandate when he's the president. How does that even I, I I just can't even fathom the thought process behind that argument. So I'm the president. I could have had the national mask mandate if I wanted it. But Joe Biden didn't pass it, which means he doesn't support it. Oh, and by the way, I've been trying to downplay mask wearing since day one. But it doesn't matter because Joe Biden didn't pass it, even though he's not the president. Yeah, It, it just makes no sense. And I wanted to mention that just because it puts on full display the hypocrisy of not just Trump himself, but of everyone who follows him. Because anyone who's paying attention to any sort of news, conservative or not, knows that from day one, Trump downplayed this virus, even admitted to doing so to Bob Woodward back in March. And because he did that, he feels like he has to keep riding those coattails for lack of a better term i've already talked on this show before about how one of the staples of the conservative bubble and of republicans in general now that they've started following this mantra is that no matter what you've done no matter what mistakes you might have made you can't change your mind on any stance you cannot admit you were ever wrong you cannot admit defeat you just have to keep pushing forward with your own narrative, making your own facts up along the way if you have to, and ending up with your own personal narrative of the way things went, that even if it's contrary to reality, it doesn't matter because that's all the bubble sees and that's all the bubble believes. So Trump saying that it's Joe Biden's fault that there is no mask mandate is basically him admitting that he didn't do the right thing, but refusing to take the blame for it and trying to shift it over to Joe Biden, even though Joe Biden had nothing to do with it because he's not the one in the White House. So anyway, the other big moment that most people commented on after the town hall was when Trump was confronted over his dismantling of Obamacare and asked, basically, would you cover people with pre-existing conditions and if so, why does it seem like your dismantling of Obamacare seems to counteract that? And Trump started to give his usual answer to that, which is, I do protect pre-existing conditions, but Obamacare's got to go, even though it protects pre-existing conditions. And when he, did, when he tried to do that, the person who was asking the question actually interrupted him 
took a page from his own book and says, excuse me, sir, please let me finish, and then finishes her argument. But the reason why this exchange was so noteworthy and ended up being so important and sort of a microcosm of the entire town hall in general was because, A, as I said earlier, she used his own tactic against him in not letting him get his answer out and just saying, I need to let me finish so that I can finish my argument, finish my thought, and then you're able to respond to that rather than trying to cut it short and, as a result, cutting short the argument I've made and making it less valid. But B, it was the first time that we've seen that an ordinary person, a voter, straight up confronted Trump on his lies and called him out on it, basically saying, how does your dismantling of Obamacare help me How are you going to protect people with pre-existing conditions if you're dismantling the one thing that protects pre-existing conditions in the first place? And so as a result, this wasn't the only question like this. It was definitely the most noteworthy and the most TV friendly of these responses. But all night long, it seemed like most of the questions he received from voters were critical in some way. Or sort of called him out on things that he'd said in the past that ended up either not panning out or just straight up not being true. So in other words, ordinary people who were supposedly undecided voters calling him out on his BS. And Trump not really having an answer for that. He wasn't prepared. The general consensus among anyone who was not in the right-wing bubble and even some people in the bubble was that Trump looked completely flabbergasted and unprepared for any sort of criticism. He expected to walk in there and to have people basically praising his name. And that's not what happened. And it's, as I said, sort of a microcosm for what's happening in the country in general, which is that there's still a very sizable portion of the country that supports Trump no matter what he does. I've said he actually could shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue and they'd still vote for him. But that's not how most of the country is now. I'd say probably around 70% of the country either doesn't like him or is starting to become either tired of him or suspicious of his motives. But with all the scandals that he's had, especially since the impeachment of just enriching himself and trying to win the election at all costs, and I'll get into that more next week, the way that the town hall was conducted wasn't so much Trump's fault or anyone else's fault as it was just a reflection of the mood at large that the country is feeling towards Trump right now. But if you're watching the bubble, if all you see is Fox News, that's not what you're going to think. Because as far as Fox News was concerned, it was a complete Democratic-controlled ambush. Right after the town hall was over, they put Laura Ingram on and she launched herself into a couple minute long rant about how Trump was ambushed by pro-democratic undecided voters. And they specifically chose those kinds of voters on ABC specifically to confuse Trump and to make him look bad. So my response to that is to say, okay, let's say for your sake, you're right. He was ambushed. By basic timely questions, such as why would you downplay the coronavirus 
or why don't you support a national mask mandate? You know, very timely, easy to follow, easy to ask, easy to answer really questions about how he's handled this last few months of his presidency. I really don't see how that's an ambush so much as Trump wasn't prepared to answer those questions because he went into this thinking that it would just be a walk in the park and that anyone who asked him questions would be a little more friendly, sort of like in the interviews that he's done with, let's say, Sean Hannity. But it wasn't that way. This was actual undecided voters that they put on the spot. And these undecided voters had questions about Trump's conduct. And Trump was not ready to answer these questions. And it made him look foolish and unprepared and at times stupid. But the day after, when I would expect, you know, some sort of aftermath coverage on Fox News or any other sites in the bubble, when I looked up to see what they had thought of his performance, I wasn't really able to find much. Because in the bubble, as far as they're concerned, this town hall pretty much didn't happen. When I went on Fox, there was nothing on their website, only a story on the GOP Senate committee subpoenaing Obama officials about the start of the Russia investigation, a story which, by the way, the mainstream media pretty much did not carry. And for the rest of the bubble, it was pretty much the same. For One America, there was nothing on any sort of town hall that Trump might have done. There was just some uh, pro-Trump and anti-Biden stories about poll momentum and herd mentality and Harris-Biden gaffes. Yeah, so I should mention that because I think it was on Monday, on that same day that Trump had the town hall, both Harris and Joe Biden made this sort of remark when they were talking about what their administration was going to do. Rather than saying the Biden-Harris administration, they said the Harris-Biden administration. And it was kind of laughed off by everybody involved. You know, Harris immediately corrected herself and then kind of chuckled, like, yep, that was an oops. But... As far as the bubble was concerned, this was undeniable proof that Joe Biden is going crazy and going senile and isn't fit to be president because he got the two names mixed up. He put he said them in the wrong order. And then Kamala, that means that Kamala Harris is actually making a power grab because she says Harris Biden, too, and agrees with him. So that means that she's not trying to be his vice president so much as just counting the days until he keels over and dies so that she could become the president and have all the real power. But there was a lot of coverage of this in the bubble, One America in particular. So the article that I'm talking about, about Harris Biden gaffes, it said gaffes, not the one gaff as it was. It was billed as a news story. It was under the news section of their website, but it called him the gaff king in the first sentence and immediately questioned his mental fitness. It made a huge deal about putting Kamala Harris's name first and saying all the things that I basically said a little bit ago about how Biden's getting senile and how Harris really just wants to be president after Biden dies. So I'm trying to figure out why they'd consider this such a big deal other than the obvious just trying to make Biden look bad. But I did some homework. I looked on normal 
mainstream reliable news sites to see if I could find anything about Harris Biden and nothing, nothing on CNN, nothing on AP, nothing on Reuters, nothing on any real reliable news source about this. So what that tells me is that the bubble true to form is trying to find anything that it possibly can to be able to hammer Biden. They are really sort of grasping desperately to try and find anything that makes him look bad. And this minor gaffe, a gaffe though it may be, they try to paint it as something far bigger and far worse and with much further implications than you might expect from someone just mixing a couple of names up. Which, by the way, as I've said many times on this show, it could happen to anybody. He says, supposed to say Biden-Harris, says Harris-Biden. Oops. That doesn't change the fact that he's president. Doesn't change the fact that she's vice president. But if you're in the bubble, it's everything. It's proof that everything we've been telling you is real. It's proof that Biden's senile and Kamala's trying to take over. And I'm I'm not even going to spend any more time on it. I'm just going to move right on to the rest of the bubble's coverage of the Trump town hall. So when I went on Breitbart, there was, again, nothing on the Trump town hall. Just a huge lettered anti-democratic message from Bill Barr. And it said, quote, Democrats are creating an incendiary situation leading to mob rule and a socialist path. And by the way, this is the attorney general of the United States who's supposed to be the lead prosecutor on anything related to the law grouping Democrats in with lawlessness. And the Attorney General is indeed supposed to be an apolitical role. And for the most part, even under Republican presidents, it usually has been. But Bill Barr is something special. Whatever Trump requires or the Republican Party requires to manifest their version of reality into actual reality, Bill Barr is willing to do. We need to question the integrity of the election. Let's have Bill Barr comment on how unsafe voter registration is and how widespread voter fraud is and how voter ID laws protect our integrity and how Democrats are going to fraud the election by creating thousands of fake ballots and millions of fake ballots and 81 million fake ballots. But my point is that this phenomenon that we see happening under the Trump administration and specifically with Bill Barr and the Justice Department isn't, in my opinion, really because of Trump himself. Trump is just sort of the conduit through which the GOP can really channel what they're really trying to do, which is to stay in power without having to go through winning an election. Because there are multiple polls out there that say that This country is moving steadily to the left in general, and the Republicans know this, and they know that it won't be long before the younger, more liberal population outweighs the older, white, conservative population in terms of vote count. So what they're trying to do is prepare for that day by using all sorts of tricks and tactics to either suppress the vote or at the very least, question its integrity so that 
in the 2020 election, if Trump loses, they'll be able to question the integrity of the vote and of the vote count and of the way the election was held. And I'll go into this later because there's an article that I read that really sort of brings into perspective what might happen. And I, I'm cheating a little bit because it came out this week and not last week, but I think it's important and it relates to what I'm going to talk about with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and move on with the coverage of Trump's town hall. And when I looked throughout the bubble to see if anybody had a story on the town hall itself, Infowars, Federalist, and the town hall, ironically, didn't have anything whatsoever on it. The only site that I went to in all of the conservative bubble that had anything on the town hall was Daily Caller. And all they had was just a very short, matter-of-fact story about that woman I was talking about earlier who asked Trump to let her finish. And that's it. It was just very short, maybe like 100 words at most, and said exactly what happened and nothing else. So the question then becomes, why is there so little coverage of this? This is a major thing that Trump did to try and connect with voters in a swing state. And they're barely talking about it. And after the day of, they're pretty much not talking about it at all. So in order to sort of gather perspective on why that might be, I went ahead and took a look at the headlines of out-of-bubble media sites. So CNN, AP, Reuters. And the results of what I found, I guess I should say they surprised me, but they really didn't. Because CNN's coverage of the town hall had the headline, Trump fumbles during tough encounter with undecided voters. AP had their coverage of the town hall titled, Trump struggles to effectively defend coronavirus response. Reuters had their coverage of the town hall headlined with, Trump bristles at tough questions from uncommitted voters. So what this means is that the bubble is actively trying to suppress the fact that this town hall ever even took place. They're trying to sweep this under the rug because they know if they just showed even a little bit of it, it would make Trump look bad. They know how bad it would make Trump look. It would make him look weak. It would make him look indecisive. It would make him look like the bad guy. And everything I know about the bubble from having been embedded in it for about two months now tells me that this is a pretty common move. If the leader of the bubble, in this case, it's Trump, has something happened to him that looks bad or that makes him look weak or unsure of himself or in any way negative, if they can sweep it under the rug, they will. And if they can't, they will do everything they can to legitimize or justify any controversial things they may have said or in the case of something that can't be defended, they'll do their best to defend it anyway. And no one's better at this than Tucker Carlson. And I'll get into him next week when I talk about the Breonna Taylor verdict, because he had some uh, quite interesting things to say. But in any case, that was the Trump town hall on that Monday. So 
Fox didn't cover it after the initial town hall and tried to sweep it under the rug. And so did the rest of the bubble. So moving on to the Biden town hall on Thursday, I, again, I didn't watch much of it, but from what I saw, it seemed a lot more friendly, way less hostile than Trump's was. And let's be honest, the crowd was definitely more attuned to Biden to be positive of Biden rather than the crowd in Trump's rally that was more attuned to be negative of him. But again, these are undecided voters we're talking about who have, I'm sure, legitimate concerns about the way Trump has handled things, whereas Joe Biden is the challenger. He's not the one who's running things. So their questions were more of, what would you do were you president in this situation? So it seemed like just from a neutral viewer's standpoint, Joe Biden's town hall went a lot better than Trump's. But at the same time, it seemed like in the bubble, they didn't want to talk about that at all. Instead, they just looked for every single little fault that they could find. So on Fox, for example, they talked about how it was in friendly territory and they gave them softball questions where 14 out of 16 of them were Democrats. And the other interesting thing that Fox did was that rather than go into the actual substance of Joe Biden's town hall, they instead decided to brag about the ratings that Trump's town hall got as opposed to Joe Biden's because Trump had more viewers in his town hall than Biden had in his. And I would say there's two reasons for that, neither of which Fox talked about, obviously. The first is that it's Trump. Trump is just a lightning rod for controversy on both sides and makes, honestly, for a more interesting media coverage than Biden would, who, as I've said before, is a lot more vanilla of a candidate. But number two, and I would say more importantly, why Trump got more viewers, his town hall was on ABC, which, by the way, is a network that everyone gets for free in America. It's one of the big four. It's available to everybody over the air. You don't have to have a cable box, which you did for Joe Biden's, which I believe was on CNN. So just naturally, due to that fact, due to the fact that not everybody gets MSNBC, myself included, they just couldn't watch Joe Biden's town hall. And even if they wanted to, Trump is a lot more interesting of a watch, a lot more entertaining, a lot more newsworthy. And so I don't think Trump got more viewers in their town hall just because people like him more. And it's also interesting that, as I said earlier, they didn't mention Trump's town hall at all after it happened. And now that Biden's has happened and they have something to compare it to, they can do a uh, manhood measuring contest, for lack of a better term, by just saying, oh, well, Trump had more viewers than Joe Biden. That makes his better, even though we don't even want to talk about it because it went so badly. But speaking of going badly... If you'd watched any sort of conservative coverage of Joe Biden's town hall, you'd think it went terribly. You'd think it was gaff-filled and error-ridden, and I believe it was on Hannity. They actually showed a compilation of Biden gaffes, quote-unquote, during the town hall, and it was all just him saying, um, uh, a bunch of times, a couple of times joking with an audience member or one of his crew, and then they made a big deal about him not social distancing with Anderson Cooper after it was done. 
And I got to say, that's pretty rich coming from the side that openly despises masks and social distancing and thinks they're infringing on their freedoms. But in the rest of the bubble, we see a similar sort of dichotomy of trying to downplay the importance of Joe Biden's by basically calling it a smear campaign and delivering softball questions, while at the same time, not trying to mention Trump's town hall at all. So on One American News Network, that was exactly what the headline said, that the Biden town hall was nothing but a smear campaign against Trump and that they threw him softball questions and it basically just showed how gaff prone and senile he's becoming. And then Infowars did the same thing that Fox News did, where they called Biden's town hall, quote, experimental because it was a drive through town hall where they maintained social distancing and took all these precautions so that nobody got sick while Trump delivered a speech to a record crowd as if this was a good thing during a pandemic. It's I, I can't even get into it. I'm not going to. But my favorite response to this was the Federalist because they didn't run anything about either town hall. But right on the top of the news page, the night that Biden held his town hall, there was an opinion piece sitting front and center on everything on their page, filed under news articles, by the way. This was under the news section of the Federalist, entitled, and I quote, Joe Biden isn't running for president. His teleprompter is. That's right, folks. We've come to it once again. The teleprompter. And I've said this so many times on this show, but I'm going to say it again. Why in all of God's green earth are they so obsessed with the use of the teleprompter? And at first I thought this was just a Biden versus Trump thing because Biden likes to read prepared speeches off the teleprompter and Trump likes to go off the cuff. But I sort of decided to try and dig into it a little bit this week. Because I've been seeing so much about it in the conservative media bubble that it blows my mind. It seems like at least a couple of times a day on Fox News and even on these other websites I've been looking at, there is something being said about, oh, well, Joe Biden used a teleprompter for his speech. I wonder what that says about his mental acuity. So I decided to go ahead and just dig deeper into this topic of the teleprompter and see if I could figure out what they've said in the past about it and maybe why. So let's take a look at teleprompter-related stories that have happened in the bubble, not just during this election, but over the last few years. So the first site I looked at was Fox News, and there were plenty to choose from. And there, believe it or not, there were actually a bunch from the Obama days. I'm talking back in 2011, 2012, basically attacking him for using the teleprompter. But interestingly, I was able to find one story in Fox News about Trump using the teleprompter presented in a negative fashion. And this was when he blamed the airport gaffe when he said that there were people being attacked at airports during the Revolutionary War. And he blamed it on the teleprompter and Fox basically took him at his word. So that was the only Trump-related teleprompter story I found on Fox. Everything else was just negative about Joe Biden and Obama. So then I moved on to Breitbart, and there was just 
an absolute smorgasbord of stories, probably three or four pages worth, attacking, all attacking Biden for using the teleprompter. And there was one article among them, even quoting Trump, saying that candidates shouldn't be allowed to use a teleprompter during speeches. And plenty of stuff about, oh, well, Joe Biden's going to be using a teleprompter during the debates. And was he using a teleprompter during the Democratic debates? We may not know. We don't know if he did, but we don't know if he didn't. Just all just speculative, insane BS like that. And town hall, same thing. More stuff on Biden having to use the teleprompter because he can't say things on his own, because he's getting too old and senile to be able to articulate his own thoughts properly. Infowars, same thing. At least four or five articles just in the last few days about Biden using the teleprompter and saying that there were interviews that he did with the media where he used the teleprompter and you can see it in the background. And I mean, I'm not going to take anything Infowars says seriously, but my point is that this whole teleprompter thing that I see in the bubble, not only is it not a new phenomenon, it's clearly been a thing for well over five or six years now. So I guess my question is still, why? And I guess it comes down to Republicans wanting people who tell it like it is and who are real men, who are mavericks and who don't don't take no for an answer and who it's 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 just a very old fashioned sort of 18th century style of thinking that they can't really get out of. And as you might guess, this 18th century thinking is really reflected a lot in the values that you see pushed on GOP voters and watchers of the bubble. For example, the uh, commercials that I talked about last week where you had the one that was just straight up pushing religious fear and saying our country has been under assault and God is no longer among us and we must ask his forgiveness and gather and basically push our religion on everyone else and then immediately followed by become a Second Amendment first responder so you can shoot people who try and come and take your guns because they're coming. Be afraid. So I think the teleprompter thing is really just a reflection of that. Just basically saying, if you have a teleprompter, you only have it because you don't trust your gut. You're not a good enough off-the-cuff speaker to be able to articulate your thoughts without having to put them down and read them like a wussy. And again, very old-fashioned style of thinking, not surprised at all. So I'm just going to go ahead, stop talking about this before I lose my mind, and move on to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. So I can tell you right now, when I saw this news, I was, I absolutely just froze in my tracks what I was doing at the time. I couldn't get anything done. And actually, one of the reasons why I'm putting this episode up so late is because it took me so long to be able to articulate what I wanted to say on this podcast that like, I basically just stopped everything I was doing and sort of sat there in disbelief, like, oh my God, it happened. And I was just going over all sorts of different scenarios that could happen in the next few months because Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And so because I just had all these thoughts 
running around in my head and I couldn't get them out and it made me super uncomfortable. I just decided to go ahead and write them down and I'm going to share those thoughts that I ended up putting down on paper with you. And just as a disclaimer before I begin, I want everyone to know that this is pretty much a worst case scenario that I'm about to describe. So basically, if everything in the next five, six months goes completely wrong, goes completely against what would be the right thing for everyone to do, and basically, long story short, ends up in civil war. So again, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. I'm saying it's sort of, this is sort of like the authoritarian list that I was talking about a few weeks back. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. I'm saying this is what could happen if the right people felt so inclined to follow these instructions to the letter, for lack of a better term. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and just lay out, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and so just very quickly, I'll talk about um, how the bubble handled it. So long story short, they did what pretty much every other news media source did, and for the first day, they basically just ran all sorts of tributes and highlights and talked about her and her legacy and her judgments. So there was nothing wrong with that. I think they did pretty much as fine a job at that as any other media source would. But then once a day passed and sort of the smoke had cleared and they felt like they could jump back into being political again, the bubble, all they could talk about was what's Trump going to do with this? How is Trump going to take advantage of this vacancy in the Supreme Court? How is he going to stack conservative justices so that he can get the will of the GOP done? And A, I think that's just completely disrespectful to her memory, especially since she told her family members before she died that she didn't want Trump replacing her and hoped that he would honor that, that chance. But B, for me anyway, it goes back to what I've always said about how the Supreme Court is not supposed to be a political tool. It's supposed to be the apolitical part of the government that strictly looks at the Constitution as interpreted in whatever the modern time happens to be. So, obviously, that's not the case. And basically, since its existence, the Supreme Court has been a political tool just like any of the other two branches of government. And Side note, I think that's completely wrong and shouldn't be the case, but obviously that's just how it is and there's nothing we can do about it. But it doesn't change the fact that trying to rush in this Supreme Court justice that Trump is inevitably going to nominate, it's just, it's wrong because of how I'm about to describe the events of the next five or six months as they might occur if things go south the way I think they can. So I'm going to go ahead and just start that off, and I'm going to read directly off what I wrote. It took me about an hour to articulate everything and put it together into cohesive sentences. So I hope I don't scare you too much, because when I wrote this down, I was scaring myself. So here we go. These are my personal thoughts on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and what it might mean for the country going forward. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death represents far more than simply a vacancy on the Supreme Court for Trump to fill with one of his lackeys. It could very well 
represent the death of true democracy in the United States and the point at which history will see authoritarianism as having irrevocably taken over the government of this country. Let me explain how, step by step, this might occur. Again, this is strictly hypothetical. I hope, beyond hope, that none of this actually happens, but I would say that at least the first three steps of this are pretty much inevitable. So I'm going to go ahead and just go through them. Step one, Trump will immediately nominate a judge to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This judge will be unflinchingly conservative, but more importantly, a steadfast Trump loyalist. Technically, it doesn't even have to be a judge, although if you've been watching the news in the last couple of days, it's pretty clear that it's going to be. But in any case, it will definitely be someone that Trump trusts to do his bidding in the nation's highest court. When Democrats and the media complain that this is happening, the right-wing bubble, Trump himself, and everyone in the government who's loyal to him will accuse the Democrats of politicizing the appointment and trying to keep conservative justice off the Supreme Court until after the election, which is true, they are. Not mentioning, of course, that four years ago, the Republicans did the exact same thing under the guise of it not being fair that Obama could appoint a justice right before the election. And so just a real quick side note here, a lot of Republicans have been asked about this in the days since she died, because obviously it's a significant thing. If they said in 2016 it wasn't okay for the Democrats to do it, but it's okay for the Republicans to do it now, Mitch McConnell and as a result the rest of the GOP's response is, oh, well, the Democrats didn't have a majority in the Senate. We do. So we can do it. And they couldn't because they didn't have a majority. So basically saying, and I'll try and do my best Mitch McConnell here, since the 1880s, no Senate has confirmed an opposite party president, Supreme Court nominee in a presidential election year. So the key term that Mitch uses here is opposite party, which basically just tells us exactly what we already know, which is if you're a Democrat, we don't want you doing it and we think it's wrong. But if it's the Republicans doing it, then it's okay. No surprise there, considering what I've seen in the bubble in the last two months. I just wanted to mention that little tangent to you know, sort of reaffirm that this really is a Republican thing and not just a Trump thing. He's sort of got them in their pocket where he wants them, for lack of a better term, even though they're willingly there. So I talk a little bit more about that in the rest of my statement, which I'll keep reading now. Step two, Senate Republicans, having long since sold their souls to Trump in the name of getting reelected, will immediately convene to confirm this justice before the election. I'm not talking confirm this justice before the inauguration. I'm talking before the election. And they can do it. They've said multiple times that they're going to rush this through as quickly as possible. If there is a confirmation hearing, which it looks like there will be, it will be rushed as quickly as possible to try and avoid any tough questions that might linger in the media and sway public opinion against them and the justice. But really, that's not going to matter. Because with the GOP having a solid majority in the Senate, and consequently there not being enough GOP senators willing to defect from this choice. So far it looks like there's two, but they need at least four. This vote to confirm the new Supreme Court justice will be successful before November 3rd. So that's step two in this process. Step three. The election, we've gotten to the election now, will result in a Biden victory, 
but not immediately. And this is very important, and I'll explain why. Fareed Zakaria, one of my favorite political reporters, did a segment last week in which he predicted that Trump would seem to win on election night because most Republicans will be voting in person, which is counted the night of the election, while most Democrats will be voting by mail, which can take a few days to fully count. So because of this, Trump will see his apparent victory dwindle after the election into a resounding defeat. So in other words, on election night, it will look like Trump is going to win. It'll look like he has more votes in more states. But the count's not going to be done for another few days. And as those results come in, all the Democrats who voted by mail will get their votes counted, and a lot of these counts will swing wildly into Biden's favor. And so, we all know that Trump has been preparing for this eventuality basically since he started running his re-election campaign, sowing doubt onto the effectiveness and accuracy of mail-in ballots, basically saying mail-in ballots are wrong, but absentee ballots are okay, which, by the way, is the same thing. And I'm sure he knows that, but he's trying to differentiate it so that his supporters and the GOP have an excuse to try and invalidate everything. And the fact that he won on election day or seemed to win, but lost a few days afterwards because of mail-in voting will not sit well with him at all. And he will predictably say that the fact that he had this victory snatched away by mail-in voting is proof in and of itself that the election was rigged against him by the Democrats and the deep state. And so then we move on to step four, which is arguably the most important part of this whole process. It's completely pivotal and how this turns out will affect how the country basically functions moving forward. So in step four, Trump officially challenges the results of the presidential election in court. And due to the obvious importance and significance of the impact this decision could have on the country, it's going to quickly move up the system and eventually into the Supreme Court. And the problem with this is that no matter how persuasive the arguments from the Biden side might be, it's not going to matter because the court will now have a swing-proof 6-3 majority of conservative justices, three of whom, by the way, will have been appointed by Trump himself. So even if John Roberts, who I have a lot of respect for because he's been willing to side with the liberal justices on a lot of the high-profile, really country-changing cases, like Obamacare, for example, even if John Roberts does what he's seen him do in these high-profile cases and sides with the liberal justices, it's still going to be a 5-4 decision in favor of Trump. And so the most obvious conclusion of this would be that the conservative justices say that the election is invalid because they can't verify the integrity of all these mail-in ballots. And as a result, Trump doesn't lose his office. He doesn't lose the election because the election, as far as they're concerned, didn't happen. So as a result, they might say there's going to be a new election. They might instead just say the election's invalid and Trump gets to keep his presidency. This is the part of this whole process that is completely up in the air for me. But as I said, I'm going worst case scenario here. So let's just say they make this... 5-4 or 6-3 decision, 
handing the presidency back to Trump and saying the election is invalid. Good luck in 2024. And I'm well aware that it's not the voters who decide the president, but the electors in the Electoral College. And I'm getting into next week's stuff here a little bit. But there was an article that came out in The Atlantic that I'm going to talk about extensively next week that basically said that the GOP is seriously and extensively looking into how they can bypass the results of the election by appointing their own electors via the legislature because they cast doubt on mail-in ballots. But again, this is just strict worst case scenario. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. I'll get into that whole thing next week. So let's just go ahead and for the sake of my argument here, say that the court just straight up says this was a fraudulent election. We're going to invalidate it completely. Trump gets to stay in office until 2024. So When that happens, then we really start seeing the proverbial you-know-what hit the fan. And so we move on to step five. Now serving in his second term, Trump will use a high-profile appearance, likely the State of the Union address, to officially, as president, accuse the Democrats of conspiring against him and cheating in the election in order to win it for Joe Biden. He will likely brand them as enemies of the state. Again, I'm talking officially. He said that before already. But we're talking from an official United States government perspective. They are now enemies of the state and announced that he will be taking executive action to make sure that this never happens again. This executive action could include officially labeling the Democratic Party as an enemy of the people and barring them from any political activity, doing away with mail in voting entirely. Implementation of strict voter ID laws to quote unquote combat fraud the appointment of election czars that would oversee the authenticity of ballot counting in election centers. Heck, he could even go so far as to make the GOP the official party of the USA. Again, I'm not saying that any of this stuff is going to happen, but it could. And if it did, it wouldn't surprise me. Moving on. In addition, Trump could accuse movements such as Black Lives Matter of being secretly run by Antifa and, like the media, in cahoots with the Democratic deep state to undermine his election and his presidency. As a result, he will issue more executive orders to hamper freedom of the press and assembly, all in the name of national security. And there will be plenty of people who complain about this at first, but it's not going to matter because police forces, Trump loves the police, will see a massive influx of cash and weaponry, along with new guidelines to fight violence with violence, and disperse any crowds of people protesting the president or his policies. Any public dissension could be met with lethal force. And the worst part about this is that many local police precincts are already infested with racism and right-wing conspiracy theories. I'm not spitballing this. This is a well-known fact. These police forces will, in effect, become Trump's secret police, as well as a military-occupying force, for, especially for low-income and racially ethnic areas. So we can already sort of see the direction things are going under this new second Trump administration that feels emboldened by its Supreme Court decision to pretty much do whatever it wants. And they'll be aided in this by the fact that in addition to all these other things, Trump's going to drag the media into this. He's always hated the mainstream media and he's going to drag them into this conspiracy that's in his head saying that they instigated fear and violence 
by reporting on things such as Black Lives Matter and encouraging things like social distancing and mask wearing and accusing non-conservative media sources as conspiring with and being funded by the Democrats to steal the election from him. He could announce even more executive actions, punishing any media coverage that is deemed un-American. He's already talked about doing this in the schools, by the way, with his whole 1776 project or whatever it's called, where he wants to essentially whitewash all the bad stuff from American history. But he's going to do this basically with the media itself, taking legal action to shut down any news media that doesn't portray him in a positive light. And we already know that Bill Barr will be more than happy to lead this charge. And installing in its place a government-mandated news system that will report only what he and the GOP want reported the way they want it reported. So we have the Democrats gone, the media fixed, and police forces patrolling the streets, basically firing on anybody who disagrees with the president. This sounds a lot like an authoritarian state, doesn't it? And again, this is an absolute worst-case scenario I'm talking about. But the scary thing is that it's not far from happening at all. Just a few simple little things that the Republicans do could shift us from this very creaky democracy that we have right now into a full-blown authoritarian dictatorial state. And if this did happen, all of these executive orders and basically the way that the government was being run would inevitably anger Democratic-controlled states and cities, such as California, where I live, and many will choose not to obey these new rules and perhaps even publicly defy them. Trump will take this both as a slight to his administration that now controls the government entirely and as a sign that the Democrats are still conspiring against him. Only now, he'll have a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court to rubber stamp any actions he takes. As a result, Trump, as he has been known to want to do, will likely mobilize the armed forces to retake these democratic streets and states through military force. Tanks and infantry will roll into democratic-run cities to, quote-unquote, restore order and keep the peace. So where would it go from here? The most obvious answer would be a full-blown second civil war, but only now, with the full might of the U.S. military behind him, it's a war Trump would probably win. And when he did win that second civil war, it would be followed immediately by even more authoritarian control to solidify his hold on power and weaken any political resistance. And all of this could happen. Again, I'm not saying it will, I'm saying it could. And we're closer than people might think. Simply because RGB died. I sincerely hope that this country as a whole has not devolved far enough into division and chaos for this to actually happen. But I can tell you right now, I am absolutely terrified that it is a real possibility, and I don't want any part in it if it does. So, I'm announcing right now to the world that if I see any of these authoritarian controls being implemented in this country, I will seriously consider leaving it. And it's not because I don't love this country. It's because I do. 
as far as I'm concerned, at the point that we start seeing real authoritarian control being implemented, the United States of America that I know and love has ceased to exist. And I refuse to be a part of whatever actions Trump might take from then on. I don't know where I'll go. I don't know what I'll do once I'm there. I haven't really thought that far ahead. And I hope I never have to. I want to reiterate that as long as I am here, I will fight as hard as I can to bring things to people's attention like this that they might not have thought of. And I will continue to report what I see in the bubble. I will continue to analyze everything that I see and make sure that whatever lies might be being told are properly explained and debunked and the truth revealed. Because Trump's truth is not truth. Trump's America, as far as I'm concerned, is not America. Trump is a wannabe dictator who is doing everything in his power, which is substantial at this point, to fix the election in his favor. And once he does, I'm fairly certain he'll do anything that he possibly can to maintain an iron grip on that power that he has. And a lot of people say, oh, well, Trump would never actually do those things that he's talking about. He's just, that's just locker room talk. But that's the thing. He's saying these things, and the Republican Party is taking real steps to actually follow through on these things that he says he's going to do. And this is why I think that we are as close as we are to authoritarianism, and also why I think it's so important that everybody vote in this election. The only way we stop this is if Joe Biden not only wins, but wins a complete landslide in the Electoral College. I'm talking at least 325, 350 electoral votes. In this way, when Trump says, oh, well, the election was rigged, he doesn't have a leg to stand on because the election was so one-sided. Basically, his explanation that there was voter rigging and mail-in ballots and fake stuff like that wouldn't account for near enough Electoral College votes to swing the election in his favor. This could happen if it was close, which I think it will be. But if it's not, if Joe Biden ends up winning in a landslide, it's pretty much the only recourse that we have against these stealthy actions that the GOP and Trump are now taking to try and undermine this election in their favor. So I'm going to go ahead and end on that thought. Get out there and vote like your life depends on it, because it might. And as long as I'm here, which I hope is a very long time, I'm going to keep on reporting on the bubble for you guys and making sure that any lies that the right-wing media tries to tell you get thoroughly debunked. Have a good one, folks. I'll see you next time.